0: I emphasize the 29 because I'm going to read up to uh, 13 first. And I don't want you, when I'm halfway through the sermon by verse 12, think, ooh, he's almost finished. And then be disappointed when there's a second major section. So it's going to go on till 29 later. But we'll read 1 to 13 first. So Mark chapter 9, starting at verse 1. And he said to them, I tell you the truth... Some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He didn't know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked round, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. has come, and they have done done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. The end of the last chapter saw us predicting, uh, saw Jesus predicting his death. And this was something that the disciples couldn't understand, they couldn't grasp it. There was Jesus, the Messiah, and then he was speaking about coming to Jerusalem, suffering, and dying, and rising from the dead, whatever that meant. So, well, Jesus explains then, after he has talked about his forthcoming suffering, that anyone wanting to be his disciple should be willing to travel a similar path, a path of humiliation, suffering, and maybe even of losing their life. were expecting something very, very different. They were expecting a path from the present directly to a glorious situation where Jesus would reign, and presumably they would reign with him from there to a glorious future. Jesus, on the other hand, knew that his coming in his Father's glory would be a second event that came after the death, the suffering, and the resurrection. So we come to the situation where he says, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. So some of them, some of the people around him, with him, some of the disciples, before they died would see the coming of the kingdom of God with power. And there's been an awful lot of discussions and commentaries written about what exactly does this mean? What did it refer to? Some people think maybe it refers to uh, Pentecost, for instance, when uh, God's power did come down. But maybe the most straightforward way of looking at it is that it refers to what comes immediately afterwards, the transfiguration. There was only a six-day pause. And then some of the disciples, Peter, James, and John, did see that power. Only temporarily it was a glimpse, a foreshadowing of what will come later, much later, um, at the second coming. And just to uh, sort of back this up a little bit, if we turn to 2 Peter, chapter 1, verse 16 and onwards, it seems very much that Peter saw it this way, because look at the language he uses here. So 2 Peter 1, 16, we didn't follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, This is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from the heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. So, the quote there, this is my son whom I love, with him I'm well pleased, is what was said, the voice that came from heaven at Jesus' baptism, as described in the very beginning of the Gospel of Mark. But he obviously is talking here about the sacred mountain, about what happened on the mountain, and the kind of language that he uses, power and coming, those kind of words seem to me to justify thinking that verse 1 in chapter 9 actually refers to the transfiguration which comes immediately afterwards. Looking then at the transfiguration, it confirms Peter's confession, the confession that you are the Christ. That's what's becoming clearly, majestically, visible on that mountain it is a glorious event that confirms who jesus is yes he is indeed the christ and it's very similar to the events of jesus baptism if you go back a few pages to the very beginning of the gospel chapter one verse nine onwards describes jesus baptism At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. So there's parallels to what happens there. Both are occasions where God speaks directly. It's the voice from God coming from heaven, speaking about Jesus, saying who Jesus is. Jesus is his son, whom he loves, with whom he's pleased, and to whom people, the disciples, should listen. So there's parallels to that, but again, looking at the language, there is very clear parallels as well to when Moses went up to the mountain, to receive the tablets with the law written on them. I'm sorry, I'm having you go to and fro the Bible quite a bit, but if you could go to Exodus, Exodus chapter 24, and we'll read a few verses from verse 12 onwards, when Moses speaks, or when God speaks to Moses. Exodus 24, 12 onwards. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and stay here, and I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and commands I have written for their instruction. Then Moses set out with Joshua his assistant, and Moses went up on the mountain of God. He said to the elders, Wait here for us until we come back to you. Aaron and Hur are with you, and anyone involved in a dispute can go to them. When Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days, the cloud covered the mountain, and on the seventh day, the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. To the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. And then Moses entered the cloud as he went up on the mountain, and he stayed on the mountain for forty days and forty nights lots of parallels there similar kind of words being used similar events being described in exodus with moses there is a cloud of god's glory covering the mountain for 6 days here in our passage on the transfiguration jesus waits for 6 days the same six and goes up on the mountain and there just like in exodus God's presence, God's glory envelops them as a cloud. Moses afterwards, same chapter in Exodus, is told to construct a tabernacle, a tent, the tent of meeting, for God to dwell in. And here it's Peter who wants to build tents, literal word being used, tabernacles, Moses, obviously, is present on both occasions. In the Old Testament, he is the one who receives the tablets with the law from God. Here he appears to the disciples and Jesus on the mountain. The first time Moses with God on the mountain in Exodus, the law was given. God's law was given to the people of Israel, establishing a covenant between God and God. And his people. Now, in the Transfiguration, Jesus' glory is temporarily revealed. It's like a veil being lifted. And the glory of the one who will bring the new covenant becomes visible to those three disciples with him on the mountain. But what about Elijah then? He's there as well. Why is he there? Well, he's the one preparing the way. Again, if you skip back to the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verse 2, it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the desert, preparing the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And in Malachi Previous chapter, not the one that Stuart read to us, chapter 3, verse 1, the same phrase is being used of Elijah being a messenger going ahead. And obviously in Mark it's referring to John the Baptist. So that's why Elijah is there. Both Moses and Elijah are there, firmly establishing Jesus in the tradition of the Old Testament This is not a radical break, it's not a new covenant that abandons everything that went before. It's a continuation of God's work that started in the Old Testament, not a break with it. In the Exodus, the people of Israel were led out of oppression. Now the process is going on whereby all people, not just the people of Israel... Will be led out of oppression now Peter recognizes that this is a special event, but he misinterprets. He wants to build tents. He didn't know what to say; they were so frightened, but being Peter, not knowing what to say doesn't stop him from saying something. But it's interesting that he uses the word "tent" that he uses the word tabernacles. He wants this. Situation to continue, and in the Old Testament, the thing that Moses did after he had established or received the tablets of the law was making this tabernacle of meeting, this tent of meeting, where the presence of the Lord would dwell. And now, Peter thinks, Well, this is great, this is what we will have now. Finally, the point has come where Jesus is revealed as the Christ in glory and power. He's got these white radiating ropes. Moses and Elijah are there. It's happening. It's finally happening. We have to make this moment last. And last now, in the present. And that's where, once again, the misunderstanding lies. He doesn't realize that other things have to happen first, despite Jesus saying this. After his confession, you are the Christ, he was quite happy to rebuke Jesus when Jesus said, I'm going to die soon. No, 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 no. that's not going to happen to you. He didn't want these things to be true. And despite Jesus' very strong response when Peter rebuked him about, no, it's not going to happen to you, Lord, you won't die it still hasn't sunk in that Jesus' path to glory is going to go through humiliation and death. He still doesn't realize this. He still doesn't want this to be true. And then in verse 7, we got, once again, just like an exodus, God speaking from the cloud. And with the background of the misunderstanding That still reigns amongst the disciples as to exactly what Jesus is going to do when. These words have particular significance. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Previously it said, with whom I'm well pleased. Now the emphasis is, listen to him. You need to give up your own ideas and you need to listen to my son. Just like Israel in the Old Testament had to listen to Moses and had some problems with that. The disciples have to listen to Jesus and have some problems with that. But the voice from heaven clearly now tells them to do that. Listen to him, not rebuke him and second-guess him or doubt or qualify some of his teaching just because they can't grasp it. But no, listen to him. And then the cloud lifts. The building of tents would have been completely useless because they're not staying there. The cloud lifts, Moses and Elijah vanish, God isn't talking anymore. It's just the disciples with Jesus, with Jesus to whom they should listen, with Jesus who is the new bearer of God's revelation. In a sense, he is the new tabernacle of God. The new tabernacle of the new covenant. The new meeting place with God. And then coming down the mountain, Jesus tells them not to tell anyone of their experience until Jesus had risen from the dead. Why not? Why shouldn't they share this? Well, because of their still limited understanding about Jesus' messiahship, about Jesus' sonship, who he really was, what his ministry was going to entail, how it was going to end, and then continue after the resurrection. Particularly because of their failure to grasp that exaltation would only come after suffering, rejection, and death. And we can see that from the discussion that they have amongst themselves about what did Jesus mean rising from the dead? They should know. He's talked about it before. But they still can't quite take it on board. As well as from their subsequent question to Jesus, that as well is telling. Why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Now, scribal teaching was that Elijah would prepare God's people for salvation through repentance. So taking on board the Bible passages we've just read and scribal teaching commented on that. And some even said that the Messiah would only receive power through an anointing of Elijah. And it might well be that the disciples were thinking that now this has happened now, hasn't it? We were just on this mountain and Elijah was there. So Jesus, you've got the power now. So why do you keep going on about suffering and dying? You've got the power. You've met with Elijah. It's all sorted now. It's all set. Let's just get on and establish the kingdom of God right here and now. Why this talk about suffering? That's the kind of thoughts that would be going through the disciples' hands. And that's why they should keep quiet about this. Why Jesus tells them not to speak about it. Because if they came running down the mountain having just seen this marvelous thing of Jesus shining, Moses and Elijah there, God's voice from heaven, you can see them running down and saying, it's happening, it's happening right here. Right now, we've met with God. Jesus has met with Moses and Elijah. He's been anointed. He's got the power. Let's get going. And that's exactly what Jesus did not want them to do. So he told them to remain quiet. In answer to their question, he points out, well, yes, Elijah does come first. We had that read to us in Malachi chapter 4. And he has in fact come as John the Baptist, as was very clear from the beginning of the Gospel of Mark. John the Baptist and his call for repentance. John suffered obviously at the hand of Herod and Herodias and Elijah was harassed by Ahab and Jezebel, as you can read in 1 Kings, and the Messiah would suffer as well. That's the situation that the disciples need to get to grips with. That's what will happen. And things will fall into place when it does. But at the moment, they're not ready to share this and talk to other people about it. (coughs) So let's read from verse 14 to 29, the second section of our passage tonight. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirits, but they couldn't. Oh, unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. And when the Spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, How long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered, It has often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the evil spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive him out? And he replied, this kind can only come out by prayer. So right down from the mountain into conflict. First conflict that he enters the discussion or he enters a situation where the disciples are arguing with the teachers of the law. And then the conflict with the demonic. Now we said Jesus would only enter into his glory through suffering as death. And death, but also through confrontation with the demonic, which will be defeated through his death. And we've seen so far that the lack of understanding of the disciples about the nature of Jesus' ministry, and now we see a practical expression of that: how they were powerless to help the boy due to their failure to understand and rely. On Jesus' power. So when Jesus asks, when he sees all this discussion going on, he asks what the argument is about. It's the boy's father who answers. And he describes the serious condition of his son. And he says that he requested of the disciples to drive the spirit out. Now this wasn't an unreasonable request. Disciples, and there were many rabbis traveling around with disciples, disciples were generally seen as representing their master in his absence. So the father's request of the disciples to intervene to do something about the spirit that his son was suffering under wasn't unusual at all. And neither was the disciples' response in attempting to help previously, Jesus had sent them out with authority uh, over evil spirits. On their own, without him, in pairs they were to travel and they had authority over evil spirits. And it worked indeed. Chapter 6, they drove out many spirits. They had done it before. So the request of the dead, nothing wrong with it. And the disciples trying to help, nothing wrong with that either. The problem didn't lie in the disciples going beyond their calling, trying to do something that they should have left alone. The problem lied in their lack of faith. And that's very clear from Jesus' response when he hears what's been going on. He says, oh, unbelieving generation. He's clearly disappointed. So he has the boy brought to him. And immediately a violent reaction of the spirit. He throws the boy into uh, a convulsion. And the father explains the extent of the spirit's torment of the boy and attempts to kill him by throwing him in the fire, throwing him in water, and the fact that it's been going on for most of the boy's life. And the father despairs after the many years of seeing his son like this. And he asks Jesus to help him, if you can do anything. So there's hope as well as doubt. After all, the disciples failed to help. Would the master be any more successful? And Jesus picks up on the doubt. It's not that he's heard that the guy says, if you can do anything. So when Jesus says, if you can, that is not feeling insulted that the man doubts him. It's, if you can, everything is possible for him who believes. So, yes, Jesus picks up on the doubt, but it doesn't depend on Jesus' ability to act. That is a given. It depends on faith. Now, that might seem a little bit harsh. The guy, the father, didn't seem to be one of the close disciples but this is not imposing some strict high standard which will then be enforced without any consideration for the circumstances it's meant as encouragement yes if you only have faith something can be done and we can see that that's the case, that it isn't a rigid standard that the man has to adhere to, because otherwise nothing would have happened. The man obviously did not have that strong a faith. Otherwise he wouldn't, or his son wouldn't have received help. Just look at the desperate response of the father. I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Yes, there there is a, a, a little bit of belief there, the sort of Seeds are there, but it isn't a fully developed plant. It's certainly not well-rooted, but he wants to believe, and he asks Jesus for help. It's a little bit like a student being faced with a math problem, saying, yes, well, I really do want to solve this equation, but I can't. Please help me. If you say that in an exam, or if you write it down on your GCSE math paper, it's not going to do you any good, is it? The examiner might sort of snort and get upset and angry, or he or she might smile, but they're not going to give you any marks for it, that's for sure. In an exam, it's not going to work. But in a lesson, a good teacher would respond to that. Yeah, If a student wants to solve a problem, great, let's sit down and work at it, let's see what we can do to make you understand. Now, in matters of faith, we're not in a pass-or-fail exam situation. We can admit our weakness and ask for help. How do I know? Well, because the Father did, and Jesus responded to it. The asking for help in itself is an act of faith, because you're asking Jesus for help. You correctly look at your own faith and say, oh, that's pretty meager. But you have enough faith to come to the one who can help, to come to Jesus. That in itself is an act of faith because we know, because it shows that we know that Jesus can help us in our weakness. And Jesus, in this case, with the Father and his Son, he does help. He does free the Son ...from the oppressing spirit. It shows that faith isn't something that we... ...securely possess... ...that we've been given... ...and it's mine now. Like you can give me a thousand pounds... ...I can put it in my wallet... ...I keep my hands on it... ...I'm not going to lose it... ...it's mine. Faith isn't like that. It is not something you possess... ...it's not something you own... ...it's always a gift from God... And it's a gift that will be given if and when you need it. After Jesus intervened, the boy at first appears dead. The spirit once again throws him into a violent convulsion. But Jesus helps him up and he is alive. He's been freed from demonic oppression. And being freed like that is always a reversal of death. Even if you're not possessed like the boy was. If you're not with Jesus, then you do not have life. And coming to Jesus changes that. It's an affirmation of life. The life that Jesus wants us to have. So that does leave us and the disciples with one final question. Why couldn't they do it? They'd done it before. And they ask Jesus afterwards, I would have done, why didn't this work when I tried? They ask him in private and they're told this kind can only come out by prayer. If you read that, you can emphasize the this kind and say, ooh, Jesus was giving an advanced lecture on demonology here and we need to be aware of all kinds of different spirits and handle them all in different ways. That's not what this is about we should emphasize it comes only out by prayer. It's not about all kinds of different types of demons, all kinds of techniques and procedures that we need to follow or that the disciples should have observed. The point is, it can only be done independently on God in prayer, not in their own strength or initiative. And isn't that the case really for anything worthwhile in christian ministry you can only do it in dependence on god in prayer so just like we just said faith isn't a possession that i can have in my wallet and just carry it around this type of gift isn't something that was theirs to control it wasn't for the disciples to control but it was something to be exercised in dependence on jesus So just in conclusion, once again, the passage can only be understood in the light of the end of the previous chapter, chapter 8. There Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. It doesn't have to mean... Literally losing your life. But we're all aware there are many parts of the world where it can be. But it is losing your life by giving it over to Jesus. Just like Tim this morning told us, you can be a slave to sin or you can be a slave to Jesus. That's the freedom that he promises you, but it's a form of slavery. You put him in the first place. You're dependent on him. And the idea that you independently can be free is a fallacy. That's what people would like to talk about. But they're not free. Only when the sun sets you free are you truly free. The disciples haven't grasped this, this need for surrender, this need for Jesus to suffer and die before entering his glories. All these things haven't yet clicked, if you like. They felt quite entitled to doubt and even challenge Jesus on things that they didn't like. They were still the standard. It was still the I that was there and said, no, Jesus, sorry, I don't agree with that. The transfiguration then reinforces who Jesus is. He is the Son of God. How silly of you to say Jesus, you're wrong. How silly of you to rebuke him. He is the Son of God. And on the mountain they saw him standing in the tradition of Moses and the law. And replacing it or bringing it to fulfillment. He is the promised Messiah for whom the way had been prepared. That was the message that was communicated to them on the mountain. And the voice from heaven said they should listen to him. Even if they don't exactly understand what's going on and why Jesus needs to suffer and why he keeps talking about that. Even if they don't fully understand what his way entails, they should listen to him. He is the bearer of God's new revelation, which is to be disclosed in the cross and the resurrection. Now, the disciples would soon gain a much fuller grasp of how God's glory will be revealed. And through them, we are blessed to have, obviously, this same understanding because we have the Bible. However, just like them, you and I shouldn't think we've got a full grasp on God. Yes, the Bible is God's word. It's all sufficient. It's all we need to know. But even if you study it for a lifetime, you can't think that just by reading the New Testament you've got a grasp on God. He goes way beyond anything that we can understand or measure. We can't act in his name on our initiative. I can't say, I've got him figured out now, I've read the New Testament ten times, I'm fine. I will go ahead and sort it all out now preach the gospel the way i think it should be done that's why the disciples couldn't fulfill their ministry to uh, the father and the son to be sure we are to act i'm not saying just sit down and let someone else do it or let god do it we've got a great commission jesus told the disciples and by extension us very clearly what we're to do make disciples share the gospel baptize them live a life that is an Example to back that message up. Yes, of course, we are to do things to make the gospel known, but never just in our own strength, on our own initiative, in a way that my feeble intelligence thinks is best. The disciples failed to free the boy when they acted in their own strength, when they acted without prayerful dependence on God. And yes, they should have had more faith. And we can see Jesus' disappointment. But we also see that he meets you there. He hasn't afterwards fired all the disciples and said, I'm going to start with a new batch because you're useless. You haven't got faith. No, he bore with them, despite the disappointment. And the father who says, yes, I believe, help my unbelief, wasn't turned away. Oh, that's a fail. You haven't solved your maths equation. No, he got the help. That he needed. His faith was strengthened and his boy was helped. God has given you gifts gifts not to be your permanent possessions to be used as you see fit and maybe even earn you credit and standing in the church. No, He's given you gifts as things to be developed. And used dependence on him to build his kingdom. that's what Jesus wants us to do. So we sh- uh, sing once again, all my days. I will sing this song of gladness.